I'm Tom's and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, y'all. And I'm going to be all right. I know I am. I know I am. I want to thank Andy and Carolyn and everybody else that, that had anything to do with inviting me down here to share this, this beautiful weekend with you. Thank you, South Florida, for letting me grow in your garden. Thank you. I love you. When I met Carolyn, I was just so delighted to have uh, a new friend that was so attractive and full of enthusiasm and everything. And, and then I met Andy, and I was intrigued by Andy. And now that I'm sitting up here scared to death, where's Andy? Where's Andy? Beam me up, Scotty! <laughs> I tell you what, bless his heart. Thank you for letting me come. i got to share my story, my little story that I always share, and I tell myself almost every time somebody asks me to talk, I said I can't do it again because I tell this story everywhere I go, but it, it makes me feel good. It lets me get warmed up, and since it's Sunday morning, you know, and and um, I are the spiritual speaker. <laughs> it's a terrible burden. <laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you my Baptist preacher joke. <laughs> I all want them Baptists, too. But uh, so if anybody out there thinks I'm picking on you, it's just because I, I like Baptists and I was reading the Baptist. This Baptist preacher was a wonderful Baptist preacher. He was a a true shepherd of the flock. He was a true pastor of the of the congregation. He labored long and diligently in the vineyard of the Lord, and he did so good that the congregation, in, in showing their gratitude and love, they took up a special offering, and they sent the preacher and his wife on a long extended vacation to Hawaii. And they went over to the islands and they just enjoyed the beauty that was over there and they sat around on the beach and they, they did all the touring and they were there for a month. And if you can get with me now, when the first Sunday that they were back on Sunday morning like this, they were driving to their little white frame Baptist church in South Alabama and the preacher's uh, wife turned to the preacher and she said, what are you going to preach on this morning, hon? He said, well, I think I'll preach on surfing. She said, you what? <laughs> he said, I think I'll preach on surfing. When we were over there in the, in the island, sitting on the beach, I observed the majesty and the grandeur and the power of the rolling waves. I observed the infinite blue sky and the white clouds that the Lord had placed. And I observed those beautiful young people with their fine tan bodies and physique balancing between the forces of nature and it's a, there's a morality there and I'm going to preach on surfing. She said, you can't preach on surfing in South Alabama. That's crazy. And he said, I will. And she said, you won't. And they just got into a big clap all the way to the church. And they pulled up in front of the church and she looked him dead in the eye and she said, if you are going to preach on surfing and embarrass me, I'm going to sit right here. Mm. And there she sat, you know. So the preacher got in his back room doing whatever they do in the back room before they come out in the front room and do it to us. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he said to himself, you know, maybe that good woman's right. Maybe I ought not preach on surfing. And he, he looked in his file drawer and way in the back was an old dog-eared, yellowed, moth-eaten Baptist sermon on sex. And he looked through it real good and he Throwed into the pulpit. I mean, he turned up, turned on, turned loose, turned around. He was motivated, anointed with tongues of fire, and he was alive. He preached the God's grandest 
he preached the doggondest Baptist sermon on sex you ever saw in your life. I mean, the, the little old ladies were clapping. The deacons were ducking down. It was, it was wonderful. It was, anyway, when the church was over, the people just were enthused. They just bawled out of the front door of that little white frame Baptist church and they came Three or four of the little old ladies there, bless their hearts, they would just go in, ooh and ah, and they saw the preacher's wife down there, and they ran over to the car, and they said, ooh, ah, it was the most wonderful sermon your husband ever preached. And she looked up at him, she said, well, I can't understand that. It's a subject he don't know anything about. <laughs> she said he only done it two times, once before we were married and once after we were married. <laughs> and he fell off both times. <laughs> Thank you, Sampa. Now I really know you love me. <laughs> oh, boy, isn't that wonderful. Before I start to talk, I want to say something. <laughs> we, we've been enjoying so much beauty and happiness, and, and we're noted for the smiles on our face and for the joy, and certainly that is part of recovery, and, and sharing our stories and the laughter and but do you know, we need to stop and reflect, at least I do, periodically, and I'm doing that right now, because it's the reason that my heart was pounding over here, too, and, and mine wasn't even pounding at a regular rate. It was doing that arrhythmia thing, you know. But that is the seriousness of what we are about. You see, we are a, a picked and a blessed people, those of us that are here this morning. And like Don was saying last night, we are responsible. And there's some people here this morning and I want you to know that I love you, that when we talk about going to jail, and when we talk about being in an insane asylum, and when we talk about wrecking our cars, when we're looking back a number of days, we learn through recovery not to take ourselves so seriously. We learn to clear away the wreckage of the past and not shut the door on it, but we learn to see it in a different perspective. But when you're about one night away from being locked up in jail, well, if you're in Al-Anon here and your husband is still drunk and out there and you don't know where, then I recognize that some of these things we share are not so darn funny. And I remember when they were not so funny to me. So have faith and have hope that through the operation of this beautiful program that the time can come where things like insane asylums and jails and, and the tragedies that befall the practicing sick, suffering alcoholic, that they can be looked back towards and seen as uh, the, the crucible of time that brings us to this beautiful place where we are today. That, that's important, that we remember, that we remember the pain, and the closer you are to the pain, the greater the pain is. It gets easier as you go along a day at a time. I like to call myself, a, if I had to call myself something, by the way, I bring you greetings, just in case Don's around. Where are you, Don? I bring you greetings from the downtown group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Montgomery, Alabama, which is really the best AA group in the world. And, you know, I always like when people laugh like that because I'm one of these folks that believe that you, you ought to believe that your home group is the best group in the world. And if you don't, if you're sitting there and you're saying, well, my home group's not the best group in the world, you've got two choices. One is to get on your horse and make sure that it becomes the best group in the world, and the other is go find another group, because your home group is your base. 
and, and you need one. I also bring you greetings from Big Tom, my sponsor, who is the finest sponsor in the known universe. And he has got enough love to, to share his love with all of you, and I share that on his behalf. If they taught me, the downtown group of AA in Montgomery, Alabama, they taught me to think of myself, if I had to describe myself to you, as an extremely conservative, far-right, radical, big-book AA member. You know? If there was a John Burke Society of AA, I'd be in it. <laughs> and I may say some things this morning in, in sharing with you that, that you disagree with. And if you do, that's okay. And that's going to hurt my feelings if you tell me about it. <laughs> but it's okay if you disagree with, with some part. But if you should find yourself in the precarious posture of disagreeing with this book right here, then I would suggest to you that that you use that as a danger sign, a red flag, a warning, a blinking light, and that you recognize immediately that you rush to your sponsor or drop to your knees or, or do whatever you need to do because that book is the program. That book is the ground rules for our way of life that keeps me alive. And, and I'm looking at a room full of people that I assume the same for. So don't disagree with the big book. I'm going to share my story with you based on the model that I looked at when I was reading that big book. You see, it tells me that I can't stand up here behind an AA podium. It doesn't tell me what I can do necessarily in other pursuits that I have, but it certainly says when I stand behind an AA podium that I don't preach, that I don't teach, that I don't exhort, that I don't theologize, that I don't doctrinate. There's one thing that I do when, when you invite me to your podium, and that is I can share. That's all I can do. I can share. It tells me what I'm supposed to share. I share my experience, my strength, and my hope. And that's real interesting. I got to looking at that, and I said, boy, that is, that's interesting. Because when I share my experience, what am I sharing? It even tells me how to share my experience, tell how it was, what happened, and how it is now. When I share my experience, what am I really sharing? I'm sharing me. I'm sharing the sum total of Tom Clark. As near as I can in the fallible manner that I am, the flawed vessel that I am, I, I share Tom Clark with you, open, in the light of day, hopefully exposed. I share myself. I share my experience, which is me. I share my strength. Now, that's real big one, because, you see, you taught me that I don't have strength. The big book says, lack of power, that was our dilemma. Strength and power are very much synonymous. I don't have strength to share with you, or do I? Then the book says, the main reason for this book is to find a power that can get us out of our dilemma. I have a disease like we've talked about all weekend, that is characterized by powerlessness. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now, Carolyn read a minute ago. So when I share my strength, my power, what I do this beautiful Sunday morning in Tampa, Florida, is I share my God. And I'll do that with you as we go along. So I'll share my experience, my strength, and my hope. Hope is a beautiful word. 
Hope is an expectation of good things to come. But there's a word a little bit stronger than hope that follows that same thing in chapter 4 in the book, and it's called faith. Faith is operative hope. Faith is hope with substance. Faith is something that you can step out of a boat into a turbulent sea and not sink. And certainly as I step out of this hotel today to go back to Montgomery, Alabama, I am stepping for an alcoholic out into a turbulent sea. But the faith in you and God as I understand him in the program will one day at a time contingent on the maintenance of this spiritual program that you've given me. It'll keep me from sinking. That's the kind of hope that I'm going to share. I'm going to share my faith. And there's an interesting thing, too, about faith. As I share these things, it is not at all necessary that you believe me. It really isn't. But it is necessary that you believe that I believe what I'm saying. You see? Because that is my faith. That is my story. That I believe it. And I share it with you to charge your battery. We all have a spiritual battery, and it gets charged in there, and it gets charged big time in a meeting like this and on a weekend like this. And then we go out in the world, and we, we have things happen like, like dishonesty and bad weather and poor stock reports and all the things that go on around us, like teenage children and other blessings, that discharge our battery, you see? I send myself to my room, too, <laughs> but I didn't even know that's what I was doing. <laughs> I thought I was pouting or fleeing or something, you know. But when we have our battery charged, you see, it's interesting to me that my power source is a spiritual battery because a battery has no generating capacity of its own. Oh, a battery has a charge, and it'll start your car. My battery has a charge, and it'll keep me sober today as long as I reach out and let God operating through you and through meetings and through the big book and through prayer and meditation and through helping others and all the battery charging type of events we have, as long as I keep my battery charged up, I'm going to be all right. But if I go out and neglect to charge my battery and go out and discharge and discharge and discharge, I believe that at a certain point I am again totally susceptible to the disease of alcoholism and certainly that the craving will return and I will be powerless over that first drink. And I don't want that to happen. Well, I don't want that to happen real bad. I want to share with you something real simple. I hope that any of you here like the stories in the back of the big book. And as I read them, that's what they're for. It tells me that. And the book says our stories show how we came to find God. That's a better different place, but it's still right there in that same big book. I hope that our stories can share, yes, indeed, there are real, live, 20th century miracles of God. I'm looking at a whole room full of them. But we have to stop and grab onto that every now and then because they can become commonplace if we're not careful. You know, your first miracle is big-time stuff. But when you see that when you get surrounded by miracles, but you know, if you'll just share with me and look up here and say, doggone it, if that boy can stay sober, darn if I can't stay sober. You know, that's the simple truth. My sponsor told me that he heard a lady talk when he came in. And the only message that he got when Gert talked, and this was 32 years ago, 
But he sat right there where you're sitting and heard Gert talk, and she was a woman and he was a man, and they were totally different in every way. But he heard Gert share, and he said, if that woman can stay sober, darned if I can't stay sober. And then 15 years later, when it was time for Big Tom to share that gift with me, perhaps I said the same thing too. Real simple, real simple. How God can change lives, working through the power of the love of people like yourself and the power of the love of Alcoholics Anonymous. The psalmist said something interesting. He said, I look to the hills from which come my power. May I paraphrase this morning and say, I will look to you. I will look to the group. I will look to the program for which cometh my power and keeps me sober a day at a time. And I, I love you. I grew up in a little town in central Alabama. My dad was an army man who moved around a lot. And I was exposed to all sort of beauty. You're looking at a person who will stand up here unabashedly and say that I was reared in a good Christian family. Now, people laugh when I say that. In fact, some folks get so carried away as to think, well, that must be the, the laboratory for hatching young alcoholics, because so many of us say that. Now, I was, um, I carried that burden for a period of time until I, I arrived on a, uh, what was it, Don last night was talking about making lemonades out of lemons. I'm big time in the lemonade business. And I said, it is true. I hear so many speakers stand up there and say I was reared in a good Christian family. Maybe that's not the best way to be reared. But then I realized that I was not hearing drinking, practicing alcoholics expounding on their philosophy in a bar. I realized that I was hearing recovering alcoholics sharing their recovery in an AA meeting. And I said, hey, how about that? Maybe that same good Christian rearing or those values that were built into me at an early age, maybe they then set me up with a foundation that I could stack this beautiful spiritual way of life on. And maybe that's the reason. And then I also looked in the big book in the chapter that was directed at me at the time that I came in entitled We Agnostics, and I recognized that the power is here for anyone regardless of where or how you were reared, or regardless of what or how you feel or your attitude. I realized that the book says that God loved me even though I didn't particularly want him to. You know, God loved me whether I wanted him to or not. Okay? So I was reared in this beautiful environment. I grew up in a little, one of those little puritanical towns, got one of those little white frame Baptist churches there all congregating right there, right there, you know, and the little old ladies are going in with their flowery hats and and it's just going to be beautiful. There were 19 kids in my graduating class at Hainville High School. 19. Now, I'm fixing to tell you there was no big-time peer group pressure to use, to use alcohol and other exotic drugs when I was growing up at Hainville High School. The, um, the boys played football, basketball, and baseball and chased the girls. That's all the boys did. And the girls let us catch them, Carolyn. That's all the girls did. <laughs> I mean... It's what's called an idyllic setting, you know. And I grew up, and I was programmed with a beautiful set of values and beliefs that I think I have tried to instill into my kids. And I'm going to share them with you so you know where I started, and you'll know what was going on inside of me as alcoholism destroyed me one cell at a time. Uh, I was supposed to not remember that I'm surrounded by ancestors. I mean grandmothers and great-grandmothers and, and beautiful people that 
I was surrounded by the sweet little old ladies at the Baptist church. My principal was a deacon in that same Baptist church, and a grandfather on one side of the family was a Baptist minister, and I was surrounded by big giant oak trees and heritage and, and pretty things. Nice. And my, my rearing had nothing whatsoever to do with my alcoholism. There's not a shred of, of thought in me that someone sat me on the potty backwards or something, and that's why I became an alcoholic, you know? But I was programmed, I was programmed that I was supposed to grow up, something I've yet to do, but I was supposed to grow up, I was supposed to graduate from an accredited college, preferably with Dean's List grade. I was supposed to get a job with a large corporate structure and rise unerringly to the top, one step at a time by sweat of brow and perseverance. You know, I was supposed to marry a pretty blonde girl preferably from a rich family, an old rich family. And we're supposed to have two pretty blonde kids and get a two-bedroom brick with a three-car garage and a pocket full of credit cards and be a deacon in the Baptist church. Isn't that darling? <laughs> Isn't it all so wonderful? <laughs> you know... Your program has allowed me, by the way, to accomplish virtually every one of those goals without even trying. And that came from page 83 and 84. That's on the other end of the story. Some things I would have never, never, never done had it not been for you in the program. And yet operating backwards, operating backwards, I was able to do what I could have never done on my own. And that's a whole other story, you know. But at the same time, friends, in the society that I lived in, there was also another message that was being heavily ingrained into my consciousness, and that was that I was supposed to learn to grow up to drink like a gentleman. Now, of all the things in God's green creation, that's the one thing that I can't do. I cannot drink like a gentleman. I chased the grand obsession, the grand insanity of step two to the brink of death, trying, as Bill said it, to drink like normal people, or whatever that is. Like Dr. Silkworth said, I cannot drink with impunity. But I was being programmed that I was supposed to grow up to drink like a gentleman. Now, my model, you've got to remember that I was sort of weird from the beginning because I had all these stereotypes and all these fantasies. My drinking like a gentleman was drinking like Dad and the, the, the other generals and colonels and their ladies and the big officers' clubs. And as I saw it, that was romantic and beautiful. I didn't see what was going on behind the scenes. I saw the dress blues and I saw the crystal decanters. My other model was that maybe like some Madison Avenue executive in a pinstripe blue suit, a white Hathaway shirt, a maroon tie, and a patch over their eye, drinking martinis on Madison Avenue at lunch. Or maybe one of my big-time ones was sitting in one of these big neo-Greek Roman homes with the white columns, you know, sitting out on the veranda in, under the wisteria, you know, enjoying cream de mint or mint julep served on a silver platter, you know, in cut grass leaded crystal decanter with stemware and a livery servant bringing it to me. <laughs> but it's an honest program, and most of the time, most of the time I really identified with what we call in Alabama the, the Southwest Alabama Piney Wood Redneck Drinkers. 
sometimes known as the good old boy. And I identified with one of the more aggressive good old boys that would burst into a saloon on payday and go over to the bar and grab a fifth of whiskey and break the top of it off and belt back about half of it and grab some pretty blonde by the ponytail to drag her back in the, you know, the back room to give her a drink too, you know. But, uh, it's not that honest the program. <laughs> anyway, that's the way I was reared. And, and I set out in life with those conflicting and impossible goals for another reason. You see, from the very beginning, I had a disease, a disease called alcoholism, cunning, baffling, powerful, progressive, and terminal. That means it always gets worse, and it'll kill you if you don't do something about it. And I didn't do anything about it because I didn't know that I had it. And I stepped out in the world chasing those dreams, fighting the good fight, and I almost died. Because in the very first experience I had with alcohol, it treated me differently. I felt it differently. I reacted differently to it than maybe some other people. I was one of these that the, the scientists called juvenile onset alcoholics or instant alcoholics. I was one of these ones that, that had about a 47-second social drinking career, you know. <laughs> and from the very first drink, I began to do things that interfered with my life, to do things that conflicted with my values. I went off to Auburn University and and after one quarter, I was summarily dismissed for drunk, drunk, drunk. And I was, I was off my track, you see. I was back home in Hainville, Alabama. And, and, but the sweet little old lady at the Hainville Baptist Church practicing charity and love, they, they understood that the fine young southern gentlemen were supposed to go through some trials and tribulations. Did all the fine young southern gentlemen were supposed to experience the opportunity to sow their wild oats, right? Particularly if you go to church on Sunday and pray for a crop failure. <laughs> but uh, so I was kicked out of I was kicked out of Auburn and I was a little bit off the track, and I began to experience the disintegration of Tom Clark. I began to experience some things that went on inside of me that I was not able to let anyone else see. And nobody saw them. Nobody saw them. Until years later, when you showed me how to open up my breast and say, hey, here I am. And you said, we love you the way you are. Because I began to hurt me. I never really minded. We were talking about sociopaths and psychopaths last night. That was kind of fun. I identify with those terms. I even paid for people to call me <laughs> But I uh, usually didn't pay, you know, come to think about it. But I grew up, <laughs> I should say I got bills for people. <laughs> but here I was, and in, in, I was getting great conflicts. You know, my sponsor taught me that when I listen to an AA story like you're doing now, that, that I'm not supposed to listen to the differences, that I'm supposed to listen to the similarities. All of us are different. All of us are totally unique. God made only one you. Even identical twins have different retina patterns and different fingerprints, and we're all different. So we have a disease that comes in a lot of different packages. 
And if we concentrate on the differences when we hear a story, if I listen to the differences, I would never hear the true message of Alcoholics Anonymous. But when I listen to the similarities, when I share those things that go on deep down inside of me, when I share the pain, when I share the anxiety, when I share the fear, then I know that there are those of you that can understand it. And when I was dismissed from Auburn, I began to feel the flickerings of that. I began to feel the outward manifestation of a, a lack of any sort of appreciable self-concept or self-worth. I began to try to develop myself a lifestyle where my self-worth was based on how you felt about me, which was based upon the quality and the quantity of the work that I performed. In other words, if I could do good enough and do enough good, then you would love me. Not for me, but for what I had done and or for what I had done for you. And I'd been kicked out of Albany, and that's bad. And a little old lady looked at me, and I was guilty, and I was shamed. But I also have a very good forgetter. You know, I can forget those things. So I, I went down in New Orleans and worked for a little while, and, and while I was there, I was arrested about three times, age 18, for uh, common drunk, for public drunk, for teeth, hair, blood, eyeballs, and blunt instrument drunk because I was a very aggressive type of alcoholic. I had little respect for the law of the land. And and it showed up because I also got around those cops, you know. But I had to get back on that track. There was something burning within me that forced me back on that track. And I went to the University of Alabama, and I matriculated into that great school of higher education, and I done good. I mean, I learned a couple survival techniques. I learned what is called building up your enabling system. Now, there's three ways to build up enablers. You can inherit them through a gene pool, like your family. That's automatic built-in enablers. Or you can do it through manipulation and contriving. Or you can do it through excellence of behavior. That's why we have so many... Uh, overachievers and that sort of thing. The best mechanic a man ever had worked for him when he worked, you know. Or he's the best painter that I ever had, or he's the best husband. I was the best student. And I did everything I knew how. And I was blessed by God with a good memory. And I really didn't learn anything, but I was able to answer the test questions right. So that I made, I made the dean's list great. I made very good grades, and I got into ROTC and got on the rifle team, and I got awards, and I got a lot of ego strokes, and I was getting all that artificial petting, because I knew inside, already at age 18, that if I did enough good things on the one hand, that when I did the inevitable bad things on the other hand, they just kind of balance out, and you would see me, and you would love me. And... I lived from crisis to crisis. From the time I was 17 years old till the time that I was 31, I lived from crisis to crisis. You showed me how to not live from crisis to crisis. From the time I was 17 till the time I was 31, not one whole calendar year went by that I was not arrested at least one time. And that's interesting to me because from then till now, I haven't been arrested at all. That's interesting, isn't it? Same me. Same cop. Interesting. 
At the University of Alabama, I, I did that good, and I built up my enablers and my points. And then one night at the Birchfield Hotel, where I would frequent most every night, I was drinking beer when last call came, and I ordered my usual six at last call. And uh, I was sitting there pouring up last call, and and I had met, I had met the most wonderful, the most stimulating the most creative conversationalist it, that you ever saw. I don't, I, I don't know about you, but I never met dodos when I was drinking. I only met nuclear physicists and airline pilots and astronauts and electronic engineers, you know. Uh, I think Dr. Silkworth also calls them lower companions. <laughs> but I met this lower companion, and as we were leaving, a craving was flung on me for some fried catfish. Now... <laughs> It's a big crowd, and if there are any psychologists out there and you want to talk about obsessive, compulsive, self-destructive behavior disorders, I know all about that, but I don't get that. I get cravings flung on me. <laughs> I got cravings flung on me when I was drinking, and I get cravings flung on me now. I mean, if a craving was flung on me in the middle of the night uh, to go get some orange sherbet and ginger ale, I'd get up, put my clothes on, and go get some... Canada dried ginger ale and Barbara's orange sherbet if it hell it's the booger man, you know. But nowadays, because of what you've given me, I have some basic respect for the law of the land and property rights and courts and those sort of things, you know. But when I was drinking, if a craving was flung on me for something and you had it, you were in a world of trouble, honey. <laughs> and uh, a craving was flung on me for some fried catfish, and it was late at night, and the places were closed, and I was in one of those dilemmas, and this lower companion said, you know, my uncle is a catfish fisherman down on the Warrior River, and he's always got a deep freeze full of catfish, and we could go over to his house, and we could get it out of the deep freeze, and we could take it back to the dormitory and fly it up in the lake to kill it and drink these pony parts, and I said, wonderful, let's do it. <laughs> and we got over to the uncle's house. And it was dark, and it was quiet, and I welled up five semesters of straight Dean's List grades, and I welled up all the academic instruction that I had programmed into my massive squash, and I did the only logical thing. I kicked the door down. <laughs> and, uh, we went on in the house, and as we were, as we were leaving, um, I believe they later said as we were exiting the premises, <laughs> if you're into that terminology, as we were leaving, my lower companion said to me, he said, you know, this is my mean uncle. I said, oh. And I got my gun out. Now, if there are any psychiatrists out there, particularly of the Freudian analytical school, and you want to speak of guns being an extension of my male virility and all of that stuff. I don't want to hear that either. I just like guns for a drink. I like them now. And I think Smith and Weston made everybody nine feet tall, you know. But I got my gun out and using that finest form that I had learned in ROTC, I blew a picture off the wall. I shot the couch a couple times. I blew the little gray myopic eyeball out of the television set. And then I shot the lock off the door. Because, you see, in my crafty intellectual mind, I knew that when the FBI and the CIA 
when the Tuscaloosa and City County Police, when the University Security System, the Canadian Northwest Mounties, and the Texas Rangers, when they came to investigate this grand happening, they would think that it was some real live interstate desperado like Bob P. that done it, not me, right? When I woke up in jail, when I woke up in jail, I found out that I suffer from impaired judgment. <laughs> now, I need to explain impaired judgment to you. Impaired judgment is not when you do stupid things. Impaired judgment is when you do stupid things while thinking they are inordinately crafty things. <laughs> and I, that pattern kind of followed me too. Looking back on all of that sort of behavior, I have drawn a very interesting conclusion. And I want to share it with you because it's important. I want you to understand clearly that I was born a half pint low. And that's true. I was born a half pint low and all of that early business of mine was trying to replace that half pint. You see, I have a deficit. I, I don't feel normal without a half a pint in me. And then normally I would go beyond that half a pint and I would again not feel normal because I would have too much. Years later, you see, what you gave me, what you gave me in this program and what you gave me in love was a substance, a spiritual substance which fills up that half-pint deficit. And as long as I keep that half-pint deficit filled, then I can operate normally with joy and with happiness. But that's that same battery charge. See, if I let that battery charge go back down, then that half-pint deficit begins to reoccur. And I begin to look for ways to feel normal. And I don't know how to do that except to enjoy the program and the gift of God that you've given me. I want to put a half pint in there. And I woke up in the jail that morning, and I had every single solitary symptom of late-stage alcoholism that I ever suffered. And I was 19 and a half years old. I had guilt, and I had fear, and I had remorse, and I had anxiety, and I had that same big, hole in my stomach with the cold wind blowing through it that Dick had, and I was afraid. I was afraid of life, and a great black cloud of doom and desperation followed me around and occasionally struck me down, and I lived from strike to strike, and I was locked up in that jail, and I felt all of that, and I felt all of that the last time I took drunk, and I don't want to feel that again. I want to feel the exact opposite. I think that only two things motivate alcoholics. I think the only two things that motivate us, and that is pain and love. The yin and the yang, the alpha and the omega of the feeling spectrum. I will flee from pain. As Father Martin says, when the pain gets bad enough, I'll do something about the pain. And when I learned what it was, I found that I would gravitate toward love, the sort of attraction love that you're radiating at me right now. The pain may push me close enough to feel your love. 
And I felt that pain. I felt a great deal of pain. I felt an entire violation of the inner me. My own values was what I was prostituting. You see, I early on reached the point where I didn't care a whit about hurting me. Didn't make, in fact, I might have gotten some kind of real or vicarious joy out of hurting you. But when I began to prostitute myself, as my values were going down, 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 and I knew it, I hit a point of massive internal and psychic pain. I hurt. If you're interested in another big book and you want to really understand that dilemma by a person who was not an alcoholic, I don't guess, you look at the last half of the seventh chapter of a neat little letter called Romans, and you'll see where a friend of mine named Paul talked about the dilemma that he was in, the horror of always inevitably doing the things that he didn't want to do and always continually not doing the things that he did want to do. And he says, oh, hard and wretched man that I am, what can I do? What can I do? Because that is a hard and wretched way to be. I was looking here on the program this morning, and it says aloneness. And here we are on Sunday morning. And I remember the Sunday morning. Johnny Cash had a song one time, never did get real big, but it was entitled Lonesome to the Bone. And I sat in many a different place on Sunday morning and felt lonesome to the bone. And this morning there's not a lonesome bone in my body, and I love you. Thank you. It's good. The dean of men blessed his heart had the unmitigating gall and audacity to asked one of his best students not to come back to the University of Alabama. And the judge asked me not to come back to Tuscaloosa. <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't go back to Tuscaloosa for exactly 12 years. And when I did, I went back to do just exactly what I'm doing right now, to speak at an AA meeting. And I went in after dark and left for daylight. <laughs> I don't know what the... Um, I don't know what the statute of limitations on aggravated grand theft catches. <laughs> oh my. I was definitely off my track and that was the story of my life. The story of my life was living from crisis to crisis, from dilemma to dilemma, from powerfulness to powerlessness. And the insanity of a disease called alcoholism. Cunning, baffling, powerful progressive and terminal. That means it always gets worse and it'll kill you if you don't do something about it. And I didn't do anything about it because I didn't know that I had it. But I knew something was wrong. I was off the track, of course. I joined the service and, and I got in the army and it has nothing to do with my story whatsoever, but just parenthetically I would share with you that I was a darn good young trooper because I had to build up my enablers. So I had two letters of commendation signed by general officers on the one hand, which was darn good for a young pre-Vietnam era trooper, you know. And I had two court martials. See, balance off just right. I, I wangled an honorable discharge, and then I came back to uh, the States, and my dad was out in Oklahoma at that time working, and I needed, I had taken nine psychology courses at the University of Maryland while I was in the service trying to find me. And I was unable to find me in those textbooks, and I was unable to find me in any of those 
uh, academic pursuit. I was unable really to get in touch with what was wrong with me except that I knew something was wrong with me. And I vaguely remember after that, I vaguely remember my first two awarenesses of AA. The first one was when my company commander after the second court-martial sent me to some kind of counseling group. And I, I remember nothing about it. Except I just in, just in the flickering of my of awareness, I remember seeing the 12 steps on the wall. And I remember some old big red-nosed major and some old pot-bellied master sergeant. And I was saying to myself, self, if you ever get bad as those guys, you'll quit too. And I drifted on out to drink more. And then when I was taking those psychology courses, there was one little paragraph right in the middle of Dr. Coleman's exhaustive theme on abnormal psychology. That's where we are in that abnormal psych book. And, uh, and I remember this. I remember that it was described, and this was sometime back, as, as this wonderful movement of self-help that was this spontaneous, informal, non-directed group therapy in action. And I said, that's interesting, good for those folks. And I went on out, and I got a dishonorable discharge, and I got back in college, and I made Dean's List grades, and I graduated from that accredited school, and got in graduate school, and married a pretty blonde girl. She was not from a wealthy family, but she made up for it in other attributes, if you know what I mean. And we had two pretty kids and got a three-bedroom brick, and I wrangled a job uh, on a corporate level with Sears and Roebuck, a large corporate structure, and I was rising unerringly to the top and getting strokes and attention, and we had, you know, the credit cards and the couple cars had everything. Anybody out there on the street would have said, there's a young man who has everything. But I'd have had one thing that maybe some of you would have been honest enough to walk up and look me dead in the eye and say, you got something else. You got alcoholism, cunning, baffling, powerful, progressive, and terminal. That means it always gets worse and it'll kill you if you don't do something about it. And I didn't do anything about it, but I was beginning to understand that I had it. My life was totally revolving around bondage to beverage alcohol. Every single day, it was funny because some nights I'd get off at nine and some I'd, some days I'd get off at, at uh, six. And there was this mechanism in me that knew when I was going to get off. Because about a half an hour before I got off, all of a sudden I'd get real fidgety. And I'd get nervous and frightened like I was when I started up here. I'd get off. Puss was breaking out on my brow and my hands would get wet and my stomach would fill up with all these butterflies like they used to before the old Hanover and Fort Deposit football games and I'd get all nervous and then I'd get off work and I'd go down to the Hollywood liquor store. And I'd walk right in the front door and the manager would say, Hi, Tom, and I'd feel all validated, you know. And I'd walk over and when my hand, right there, when it got about six inches, from that pint bottle of Seagram 7, some sort of brown vibration would come out of that bottle. And it would rush through my body and tingle me all over. And my breathing would get regular. I would get steady. I would feel secure. The perspiration would dry up. All those butterflies would fly off to an Alanon meeting somewhere. And I mean to tell you... 
I feel wonderful. And then I'd get my straw open the bottle. And, and I'd go home and I'd take my straight shot while mixing my mixed drink. And I'd go in and sit down in my big chair in my living room and flop my feet up on my footstool and watch my TV and order my woman around. You know? And many the night when I wake up and the television set be sitting over there all gray and squiggly going, you know, and I'd say to myself, self, you've fallen asleep in your big chair. You, you haven't, you haven't played with your pretty children. You haven't eaten supper with your family. You haven't gone to bed with your pretty wife. You're just working too hard. You, you're so stressed. You've got to, you've got to relax more. <laughs> And I'd get up and I'd stagger into bed and pass out. And then every morning I'd wake up and that's when I went through the period of having toothpaste allergies. You know, every morning when I brushed my teeth, I'd start rushing. And I'd get dry heaves and my eyes would definitely wouldn't be white and my head would pound and I'd change toothpaste time after time. They make... Y'all are laughing, but they make it a lot better toothpaste these days. I, I can tell you... <laughs> They got it out of it. <laughs> you know, somewhere along in there, the bottom began to fall out because my beautiful little country wife, bless her naive and gorgeous soul, innocent, she fell amongst a cloven of black belt Alanon. <laughs> yeah. I love Alabama. Y'all can go call AT&T right to Montgomery, Alabama, and they'll tell you I love Alabama, because I know that Alabama's ultimately saved my life. But there was a time in my life when I didn't exactly love Alabama. <laughs> in fact, the matter is, if you'd ask me what an Alabama was, I'd say it's a bunch of nosy, nagging bitches. That's what I'd have said. <laughs> when you accept apology from your spiritual figure. <laughs> But it's an honest program. And that was the time in my life when I felt that way. And she fell amongst them, and they, oh, let me tell you, they taught her something that was wonderful to begin with. They taught her acceptance. And acceptance was wonderful. She didn't pour out my boo. She didn't holler at me. She didn't beat me with her high heels when I was passed out. I wondered for years where I got those little round bruises till I heard, <laughs> I heard another speaker and I said, aha! Oh, I loved acceptance. And then they taught her one that was even better. They taught her to touch with love. Now, that's what I wasn't getting to touch with love is what I like. <laughs> but then, friends, they taught her the most cruel, the most insidious, the most diabolical plot ever hatched up in the dark recesses of the predominantly feminine brain. They taught her, don't take up for your alcoholic. Don't make excuses for your alcoholic. Don't cover up his problem and pick up his bounce check. Let his problem arise to the light of day and perfect. My boss called up one morning asking about his fair-haired boy and said, where's Tom? Is he sick? He said, no, sir, he's drunk. <laughs> My problem is... <laughs> uh -oh. 
That was my first spiritual experience. <laughs> my problem arose in physics. That's, um, that's when I condescended to interview a, a psychologist for a while, and I think I talked to Dr. Smith an awful lot about, uh, you know, high, stressful, young, executive drinkers, but we didn't do much good, of course. That's when I condescended to go to your meetings for the first time, and I came to your meetings, and I marveled. I said, isn't this the most wonderful, informal, non-directed group therapy in action you've ever seen? I said, it is so good. It is great for these poor, afflicted ones. <laughs> and I was proud of you, and I memorized your serenity prayer, and I read the soap operas in the back of your big book, some of them better than as the world turns. There's a section in there that says, they stopped in time. And I read that, I said, uh-uh, they didn't stop in time. <laughs> if I ever get that bad, I'll quit too. And I had great pride, because you see, I suffer from a disease of pride. And ego run riot. And I had great pride that I never drank before your meetings. I always drank after your meetings. And I entered into a period in my life where I was a very ugly, mean person. Because it got bad then. All that stuff I was telling you about was acute in nature, and there was some good in between. But I had this alcoholism, cunning, baffling, powerful, progressive, and terminal. That means it always gets worse, and it'll kill you if you don't do something about it. And I didn't do anything about it, but you let me know that I had it, and that was your first great gift to me. You let me know that I had alcoholism. I didn't accept it. I didn't operate on it. But I went out there and great pain began to come because I hit a period of time where I was massively abusive of the people that I loved the most, my wife and my children. Now, it wasn't in my southern gentleman model to beat them physically. I didn't do that, and, and I'm just grateful that I did. But understand in the cases where people do. Because maybe I did even worse. I beat them emotionally, and I beat them mentally. And I beat them psychologically with threat and innuendo. And I was mean and I was ugly and I was hurt. And I used to dwell on, I used to sit in discussion meetings and people would get great and lofty and philosophical on why do we hurt the ones we love the most. That's another simple one because they are the ones that are in the room with us, you know. And that's right. You know, get up in the middle of the night and drive all the way across town to hurt somebody. If there's someone laying right next to you, <laughs> that's the motherfuckers might hit back. <laughs> but I'll share with you just one incident just to give you an idea of the depth of, of deprivation that, that I had sunk to, given that where I started. Because of alcoholism. One three-day holiday, we had friends coming over about seven that evening. We still had a few friends, and I started drinking pretty heavy about six that morning. And somewhere, somewhere in the middle of the afternoon, I went beyond the ability of a budding Al-Anon to endure. And when the pain gets bad enough, you'll do something about the pain. I think that I told her that I was going to take our three-month-old little neonatal son and and bang him against the wall until his brains ran down the wall and then broke a bottle of 57 sauce in the floor to show her graphically what it was going to look like and then said, clean it up, woman. And I weighed 220 pounds of bloated, unshaven, dirty, profane beard blob and she was in willowy 115 fashion model 
and I knew I wasn't going to kill her or harm the children, but she didn't know I wasn't going to kill her or harm the children. And she did the only thing she could to survive. She, she fled the house and never go to Oklahoma. Never go to Oklahoma, bitch, if you ever plan to drink it. Thank even if you don't plan to drink again. Never go to Oklahoma. They got some weird laws out there. I've been arrested in multiple state foreign lands and jurisdictions unknown for charges like private drunk and common drunk. That always hurt my feelings. But you know, they got a charge in Oklahoma that's called private drunk. And that's where your own wife calls the police and they come arrest you in your own big chair. And the police came into the door. And I answered the door and they said, you know, we're going to have to take you downtown to do that. And I said, well, I had learned alcoholism taught me how to go to jail. The first time I went to jail, remember I told you the remorse and the guilt and the fear and the anxiety, alcoholism taught me how to go to jail and how to act when I went to jail. And I knew that you never go to jail in shower shoes and Bermuda shorts and t-shirts because you go to court the next morning and what you go to jail in the night before. And you want to go to jail dressed up like I am now. Because then you get the respect and dignity you do. <laughs> you don't want to be treated like some drunk or something. And uh, so I asked the cops and they said, okay, you can change your clothes. And, and I'm not taking up for cops. I still got lumps too, but I understand them a little better because when I got down the hall and, and I was observed my reserve paint in my sock drawer and I took a pull on my reserve paint and I said to myself, self, I believe I have a little fun with the Tulsa Police Department. And I got my shotgun down. And I leaned around the door jam and I said, hey, and the two detectives said, hey, I said, I got a loaded shotgun back here. It's a pump, you know. And they said, uh-huh. And I said... I sat down on my bed to work on my reserve pint, and I let their imagination work on them. And about a half a half a pint later, I, be, I tired of toying with the Tulsa Police Department, and I cut my screen out, and I got it toward arms, and I was ready to repel like the ranger training I'd had out my bedroom window. And in my yard, behind my big oak tree, was a SWAT trooper with his shotgun. <laughs> You got it, neighbors. They had called out SWAT. They had barricaded and evacuated the neighborhood. And when I surrendered, I surrendered live in living color on the 6 o'clock news. <laughs> now, Some people erroneously still believe that I fired some chairs and roebuck, but that's an incomplete conclusion. I called up from the Tulsa County Jail and resigned. <laughs> Darn sure did. <laughs> I need to make an important announcement right now. I need to make an important announcement. Somebody made it at an AA meeting and that saved my life. Nobody in this room, nobody in this room, including Alanons and Alatines and our honored guests and any hotel employees that are peeking through the cracks, nobody in this room ever has to take another drink unless they want to. Nobody in this room ever has to take another drink. And nobody in this room ever has to go any lower to the progressive and terminal disease of alcoholism unless they choose to.
You see, I had an opportunity to be what you call a high-bottom drunk. And any of us in this room never have to have a bottom any lower than where it is right now. In fact, everything in life can be up from here. Because after that episode, life got bad. I was processed through the courts. I had the opportunity to choose with my own free will of going to state penitentiary for an indeterminate time for a variety of charges or being uh, committed to the state mental institution. And I did some rapid thinking and I chose the insane asylum. And I want you to understand we talk about yuppies nowadays and I became a different kind of yuppie, upward mobile young professional because my upward mobility was when you leave the isolation cell in the Tulsa County Jail, it's upward mobility to go to the lockup ward at the state insane asylum. Even if the first night I was in there, I got up to go to the bathroom and somebody got in my bed and went to the bathroom. Like and then I woke up the next morning unbelievably enough locked up in a room full of crazy people. And it's upward mobility when a week later they transfer you to the open, what they erroneously called AA ward. We know there's not an AA ward, but we know what was meant by that term. And the message of freedom and AA was brought in that ward to me by the outside institutional committee of Anita, Oklahoma, and they planted the seeds. And I'm eternally grateful, and I spent great time and support, and I have, oh, I love institutional work, both to the prisons and the hospitals and the treatment programs and the VA institutions and anywhere we can carry the message of love and God's miracle and recovery from alcoholism one day at a time. And I was in that insane asylum, and I was drug-free. And I want to share this with you, and then kind of close. I want to share this with you because, to me, it really spells out the insanity of step two. Not that crazy stuff I was telling you about. You see, anybody that drinks can do things like that, because when you drink, by definition, you suffer from impaired judgment and impaired psychomotor coordination. And if you're thinking squirrely and your balance and coordination is squirrely, you're going to do squirrely things like drive cars drunk and abuse your children and break into bars and weird behavior. I was in that hospital for five and a half weeks. I was given good food. I was off all drugs. I had one group during the day where they read the big book to us and, and then some other rather bizarre therapies. At that time, the Northeast Oklahoma State Mental Institution thought alcoholism was characterized by a leather craft deficiency. Because I made so many belts and billfolds, I made billfolds and belts for people, it probably helped, I don't know, but I also got into some ceramic therapy and some OT and PT and RT and LT and I ate good food and, and I learned to drink black coffee and I, I, but you know, I was to be properly discharged at the end of the sixth week. And in the middle of the fifth week, a craving was flung on me to escape. Now, y'all know what I do when a craving's flung on me. And you see, the interesting thing is, by any medical definition, by any physical medical definition, by the middle of the fifth week, I was sober. I had been doing exercise and sleeping good, and I was in the best physical condition I had been in since Army basic training. I was 
physically sober and physically well, and I looked well, and people began to treat me well, and I worked well. And a craving was flung on me to escape. And I've observed all my life, if you'll put on a suit, and you'll get a clipboard and a pencil, and walk fast and look down, you can go anywhere you want to. <laughs> and I'm not going to be like Don and, and, you know, hoard my secrets. I'm going to share them with you in case you need them. <laughs> and, and I went to the, I put on my Sunday dressing clothes, and I went to the nursing station, and I got a chart and a pencil, and I walked fast and looked down, went on out the door over to the uh, administration building, and a man was coming down the steps in case you ever need this, and I was going up the steps, and this was an old-fashioned insane asylum before the federal courts got involved, and it had walls and everything. And uh, I said, sir, I am a fan young, straight-A graduate student in psychology from the University of Tulsa, and I'm out here getting a summer job to help these poor, afflicted, and depraved ones. And I wonder, since it's raining, if you could give me a ride into town. He said, sure, son, hop right in. And as we went through the gate and were waving at the guard, I looked over at Rascal's sun visor, and there was his ID. He's a Tulsa County Deputy Sheriff. He took some poor beggar in, but he took me out. Now, he let me off in that little town, and on this side of the street was the Greyhound bus station and 60 miles straight shot to what I perceived as freedom and happiness and joy and and liberty and goodness and mercy. And on this side of the street was a little brown rustic building. Oh, and it had a blue sign on the side of it. Oh, and it was speaking to the depth of my being. It was saying, blink, blink, curse on draft, curse on draft. And I said to myself, self, one draft beer won't hurt anybody. I was passed out for a finished escaping. <laughs> and when I came to, I made my way on into Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I went to the child care center and I kidnapped my own infant son and I fled across state lines in multiple jurisdictions and I became a fugitive from justice and a ward of the state. And I could not enter into contracts or vote or get a security clearance or a driver's license. And I entered into a period of time where life got bad. And ultimately, I had to negotiate through attorneys and judges and go back and surrender and be properly discharged. And then my family, because this is indeed a family illness, they were sick enough that they moved with me to Alabama. And then life got bad. I taught school for a couple of years because my sister was my supervisor and my cousin was the superintendent and I was a drunk school teacher and I hated it because I did want to help people. I taught English and literature in an all-black high school, the one that had been the all-white high school that I graduated from, and I really felt somewhat like a missionary, a feeling of need to share me that I'd always have, a feeling of need to share me that only you let me get to the point where I had something to share, but something that was strong within me, and I knew how I was prostituting myself, and I knew how I was violating my own values, and I hurt so bad, and that big cold hole in my stomach would only be shut by filling it up with booze. I reached the point in life where it was really, really bad. I went in and out of hospitals, in and out of psych units, in and out of 
mental hospitals and sanitariums. And I, I, I hit the point in time for about two years there where I was fighting, fighting, fighting. And I was losing, losing, losing. I hit that period in time where my self-concept went to so zero that I would not go down to the Haynesville post office to check the mail in the daytime. I wouldn't be seen by those same sweet little old ladies, some of which still love me. I hit that point in time where I was 100% absolutely and completely miserable when I was not drinking. And a time bomb was ticking in my pocket and I knew that it would go off and it always did. And I was also absolutely, completely and totally miserable when I was drinking. And that left me one place to go, friends, and that was pass out. And many of the time I went back into the back room in this mobile home that I'd taken the screens out and covered them with aluminum foil. And it was black and it was dark. And them same psychologists and psychiatrists that want to talk about returning to the room and all of that, I don't know what I was doing, but I know I wasn't doing something normal. And I know I went in that room with a half-gallon bottle of I.W. Harper on a number of occasions with no conscious attempt or desire or motivation to come back out. And I know that I did not come back out. I know that some enablers, and sometimes they get a bad rap, but bless their heart, they saved my life time and time again. They enabled me to continue breathing because they would break the door or pick the lock or come in and bring the emergency squad and call, haul me off to another hospital to be resuscitated. And that kind of enabling is rather critical. You see, I went in the room not to come out. But there's a problem with passed out, and it's called come to. And I always did, and life was always worse, and it was bad. My wife is going to Al-Anon again, and they were helping her. And she found some new people, and they hauled me off. Share this with me on Sunday morning in Tampa, Florida. They hauled me off to a new kind of hospital. There's no treatment around in those days as we know it now. But there was a recovering doc that was running this program. And they hauled me off to a little hospital over in Macon County in Tuskegee, Alabama, to this new kind of doctor who didn't believe in just giving you all those pills and letting you float and fly and go out again to drink again like I did again. And they brought me to Dr. Carl, and he believed that you ought to shake and sweat a little bit and appreciate your sobriety as you earn the right to live again. And... I was fighting him because I had this alcoholism and I would leave and then I'd get a gun and a bottle and shoot something up and my family would capture me and bring me back. And 14 years ago, this past Christmas season, I was in and out of that hospital most all of December and most all of January and most all of February. And I was sick and I was destitute and bankrupt and hopeless and insane and violent and drunk and profane and godless and share this with me because I need for you to share back when I need my battery built up. Share this with me. About the third day of maybe the third hospitalization, my dad came to see me, and that was kind of unusual. A beautiful, mature Christian man in the latter part of his life, and 
was laying there in that bed, kind of ambulatory, but it, he looked down at me, and I had no job, and I had no money, and one car was wrecked, and the other one was being repossessed, and I had no friends, and I had no hope, and I had no love, and I had no life, and I had nothing. And he looked down at me, and he said, Son, I've got some bad news for you. And I, I'm, I almost laughed at the man like you're doing. It was just as ludicrous. But I could see the pain in his eyes. I could see his pain in his eyes, his family disease. And this beautiful, mature Christian man, educator, Harvard Business School, and Army career officer, an articulate man, pain in his eyes. He looked down at me and said, Julie's taking the children and going home to Oklahoma, and she probably won't be back. And he loved that grandson, Thomas III, T3. Named after him more than anything in the latter days of his life. And the pain, the real pain in his eyes, came from his real awareness that he would probably not see that grandson again, except on vacation. And he said, you know, he's taking the kids. and You had no need for that mobile home you were buying, and you were way behind on the payments. And so I called the finance company, and they picked it up. You see, when I lost my home, I literally lost it. When I got out of Sometimes later, there was nothing there out there on that pretty field overlooking that lake and, and that property and those oak trees and all that heritage. There was nothing there but a, a power pole and some concrete blocks and some little broken toys and a, maybe a kerosene drum or something. When I lost my home, I literally lost it. And he came up then with his great classic New Testament type of tough love because he never went to Al-Anon. He went to some open anniversary meetings, but he never enjoyed the spirit and the fellowship of Al-Anon, but he understood it because he looked right at me and he said, Son, I love you because you're my son, but I don't like you, and I don't understand you, and I can't help you, but I do love you. And he did an about face and walked. I followed him to the door. God will pull you through if you can stand the pull. I followed him to the door and stood at the door of that little hospital. Share this with me. And I looked down at the lake, which is the water supply for Tuskegee, Alabama. And I sat there looking at that lake. And from whatever fiber of being was left in me, I resolved with the proper motivation of altruism to just walk down that hill and fling myself in that lake and drown not to get myself off the pity pot. No, that doesn't get it. Not a lot of drunks really do commit suicide while they're drinking. But a lot of them do on about the third day when the utter desperation and hopelessness and blackness of late-stage alcoholism hits them like a hammer. And they leave hospitals and they jump out of windows and they pull triggers in their mouth. And I, I was going to run down... Now, friends, all my life I have heard in those little white frame Baptist churches and in many other places that God helps those who help themselves. Now, friends, I do not any longer believe that that is true. It is not New Testament true, and it is not big book true. In fact, it says, came to believe that no human power could have relieved their alcoholism. Self is the biggest human power of all. Self, what's got to go? Remember the line in chapter 4 that says, Who am I to say there is no God? Who am I to say he needs my help? When you have a God as you understand him, 
make him a big God. Make him as big as maybe a shadow of what he really is. Don't limit God as you understand him. I don't believe that God helps those who help themselves. I, in fact, believe that God helps those who admit they are helpless. And I stood at that door and I admitted, like many another suffering drunk, I am helpless. God help me. And when that happens, something's going to happen. Because it says so in the book, both books. And many people I have sat where you're sitting and heard them attest to the same thing as they shared with me. Share this with me. Tuskegee's not that big a town. I was going crazy, but yet I was insane and I was vain and I was proud and I was a sick alcoholic and a little thought came over me, you ought to touch base with the Baptist minister before you do this thing. And so I went to the phone book and I looked in the phone book and y'all, some of you can really appreciate where I'm coming from because I looked in the phone book and there were two Baptist churches and I knew one of them was the white Baptist church and one of them was the black Baptist church and I was darned if I'd called a black Baptist preacher to save my soul before I committed suicide. And I was too proud and I was too vain and I was too conceited to go ask the black attendant which one was with. And I stood at that door going crazy. And because I was blocking the door, I opened it and a man walked in and down the hall. And a little old black lady sitting right over there looked me dead in the eye and said, isn't that Reverend Butler, the Baptist minister? And I said, I don't know, lady, but I'm going to find out. And I followed him down the hall and indeed it was Reverend Butler, the Baptist minister. But of course, that's not all because you know, 15 years ago, there wasn't all that many ministers that really appreciated and understood our way of life and our program and our fellowship. But this one did. This one in that little bitty Alabama town did. He went to open meetings and endorsed Al-Anon and referred people to our fellowship and our 12-step workers, and Reverend Butler did. And we prayed together, and something went away. Something went away. And before he went away, here came that crazy recovering alcoholic Dr. Carl. We're supposed to come that time today. He was supposed to come in the morning, and this was in the afternoon, and he came by and he said, I just out riding around, thought I'd stop by and see how he was doing. And we talked together, and I heard something, and something went away. And before Dr. Carl went away, he came George and Clara B. from the Tuskegee AA group, and they said, they just out riding around. So, in their continental, by the way, and they, they, they just thought they'd stop by and see how I was doing, and we talked, and something went away. And before they went away, the phone rang, and it was Buddy, a then 28-year-old recovering alcoholic from the Tuskegee AA group, and he was calling to just started call and see if I might want to be checked out and taken to the Opelika meeting that night, and he came over and got me, and I went to that meeting, and something, something went away. I stood at the turning point. I asked his protection and care with complete abandon. And something went away. I never, never, never went back into utter blackness and hopelessness and powerlessness of full-fledged active alcoholism. I had to have a flip about a few months later, but my sponsor in the downtown group caught me and rescued me and brought me back into the fruit of love that feeds my illness. 
All five of those people that I mentioned are dead today. In fact, they were all five dead within three years of the time that happened. Six months later, Reverend Butler died of a stroke, a mature, contributing, long-term Christian life. Clara couldn't stand the pain of arthritis and took her own life. George had a stroke six or months or a year later. Dr. Carl never really got sober himself, and after several trips to treatment, he had open-heart surgery and didn't recover from open-heart surgery, and Buddy died drunk at age 30. But all five of those people were there that morning when a drunk cried out in utter desperation, and a big God heard it. The voice said, come to the edge. And they said, no, we're afraid. The voice said, come to the edge. And they said, no, we're afraid. The voice said, come to the edge. And they came. And he pushed them. And they flew. He said, come to the edge. And I came to the edge. And he pushed me. And I can learn to fly. Oh, when I got out of that hospital, you know, I could tell you all those things. I, I didn't do nothing. Hey, I didn't do nothing. I went to the downtown group and I wanted what you have and because of something that was not even me, because it wasn't me, you see, I didn't have the constitutional honesty or anything else to want what you have. But somehow or another, I wanted what you have. And I guess I was willing to go to most any length to get it because I did what the people told me to do at the downtown group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I tried to do what John told me to do last night and what our other speakers like Larry and Trez and all of them have been telling me to do. And I try to do what that big book tells me to do, but I don't do what I do. I do what is suggested as a program of recovery. One day at a time became the key to my program, and I shared this because it was two years into non-drinking, and I'm going to say sobriety, because I don't knock physical sobriety. Hey, physical sobriety, however it is, is a lot gooder than drunk. And it was two years into physical sobriety, and I'm still believing that how can I understand and live one day at a time when I've been to five universities? to learn statistical science, to learn forecasting and budgeting and structuring and analyzing and, and you know, and then one day that same education that probably should have killed me, that same education bombed right onto my head that every great religion and every great philosophy, and if you could check it out, that has ever existed that the anthropologists have studied has endorsed that single little statement, live one day at a time, one way or the other. Confucius said the longest journey begins with a single step. Aristotle and Plato enjoyed the same approach to their philosophy. When God took care of the children of Israel when they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, check it out. How did he do it? One day at a time. Gave them that manna from heaven. One day at a time. Some of them didn't trust him as we do now. Wanted to take it back and store up some of that just in case he missed a day. But it's fall, and every day they get a new supply. When the master walked the rocky shores of the Sea of Galilee and gathered the people together and taught them on the mountainside, if you want to look it up in the 
in the foreign language of King James in Matthew 6.34, it'll say, Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. If you look it up in a living Bible paraphrase, it'll say, Live one day at a time. And when we close this meeting and pray, and pray the Lord's Prayer together, holding hands in grateful and reverent attitude, we will pray, give us this day our daily bread. We won't ask for a month's supply. Give us this day our daily bread. And when that bombed down on my head, I was able to tune in with the power, with the power of living that you have given me, that God has given me through his grace and love. Grace, unmerited favor, free gift, unearned. 